0: Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on the wildly influential post punk group That Petrol Emotion guitarist and songwriter Raymond Gorman and lead singer Steve Mack join me to mark the release of the band's career-spanning box set Every Beginning Has a Future, an anthology 1984-1994. to Spawned from the ashes of the Northern Irish pop-punk group The Undertones, the Petrols synthesized all of the music, culture, and politics around them to create something vibrant and new. Across five albums, all given a fresh cleanup and augmented with singles, b-sides, and rarities in the new box. The band combined 80s indie alt-rock, post-punk, garage, dance, and even hip-hop to innovate their way into becoming one of the most important and influential bands of their era. Their genre-hopping and political identities came at a cost. While their fan base was fervent and ever-growing, mainstream success eluded the band. Their sound was too difficult to pigeonhole, and their politics— particularly their identification with Northern Ireland and other liberation struggles around the world, made them untouchable and in some cases censored by the mainstream press of the time. But the music and the legacy is undeniable. That petrol emotion fits neatly on a record shelf alongside trailblazers like The Clash or Public Image Limited. And you'd be hard pressed to imagine a Britpop or Manchester scene without the path they forged. I could have spent another hour or two with Steve and Raymond, and hoped to one day. In the meantime, We have this conversation and, of course, the music. Enjoy. I don't want to do like a linear take-me-through-every-step-of-the-way discussion with you guys. I think you've done that, and I think the essay in the box set does a really good job of recapping the story. And I'd I'd rather just probe some other things with you, so I hope that's okay.
1: Yes, great, whatever you want. But it's funny that you
0: use the word nervous because that's not a word I would ever think of in relation to your band. You guys always exuded a lot of confidence. It's a funny word to hear you use in relation to the Petrels or in relation to your work. Manic, for sure. Manic is the best word. Like you guys nailed it the first time out. That's the that is the best word. But I don't think of you as having been nervous. What, were you, were you nervous? Well, I
1: mean, like live TV was 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 nervous. It only happened a few times, but say, for example, whenever we we're just we just put out *Chemical Crazy and like we, I think we wanted to actually do Abandon live. It's this program called uh, The Late Show on, on BBC. It's kind, of, it's kind of like an arts program. It's really good. And I, I thought we should have done Abandon because everybody would have been lucid, would have been fantastic. But our manager insisted that we do sensitize. And the thing about it was, that was, a, that was a song that came together in the studio. and We haven't really played it live. I mean, once we played it, you know, 10 times live, it was great. But they do that live and it was all back and vocals and you, you're really a little bit unsure. That, that's what I mean by nervous. Do you know what I mean? When you're not sort yeah. of totally in command. Whereas like the first time that we were on British TV, uh, there was a program called The Tube. And it's one of the best things we've ever done. It's just fantastic. People still talk about it to this day. It's one of the kind of defining pieces of footage of the band, you know, and it's it is live in front of the studio audience as well. There's no no chance to muck up. I
2: would say that we were always a very passionate band and that right before we would go on, I mean, Raymond and I were losing our minds. And, and to this day, I'm still playing and I still get nervous every single time before I hit the stage because you care, right? Yeah, yeah You yeah. want to go up there and be... I want to give those people the feeling that Iggy Pop gave me when I saw him, right? That Jello Biafra gave me when I saw them. I want to be afraid. I want to be enthralled. I want to be taken to a place that I haven't been to before. And that's what we always strove was to give them everything and we did. I mean, like, if you ever came backstage to see us afterwards, we were awful because there was nothing left. I mean, we were just exhausted.
1: Like, lying on the floor, yeah. Like, everybody lying on the floor.
2: Towels over their heads. And, <laughs> yeah, that's
1: you know. why we, we used to wear these heaviest shorts for a while. And it's like, it looks bad now, uh, looking back. But at the time, you know, we used to, like, you lay half a stone in sweat on stage because we, it was intense. You know, I remember a, a guy said to me one time, even your sound checks are intense.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and it's true because
1: we could never do that thing of being a bit laid back I and mean, it's it's better now like the, the band we have at the moment now the everlasting yeah that's that's a lot more laid back but even the first time that we played live in the everlasting yeah because i was doing most of the singing i almost had a connuption fit in the morning thinking about it and i really worked myself up and then literally i had to sit a daily like deep breathing for about an hour and, and get myself centered <laughs> And then, of course, we walked on stage and we had nobody had seen us play for ages. So there was just this warmth and love from the crowd. You know, we would follow the pedals, now they're coming to see us. And I and it just lifted me up and I thought, well, what am I worried about? i playing in front of people who like your music. It's not going to be a fight. You know, they're going to be empty what you're doing. You're just bloody relax. Now, you passed the audition. Yeah, <laughs>
2: But I mean, think about like, did you ever see a bad Gang of Four show? No, they were always transcendent, right? And that's who we held up as our heroes. We want to be yeah, as no, good totally, as totally. the people we saw, right? And it demanded absolute dedication and focus, right? And so that's why we were always that way. And we always exploded on stage because we were trying to, right? It's true.
1: We Even from the early days, I mean, it was always unspoken as well. There was just a belief that we were going to succeed. I mean, failure was just not an option. You know, I mean, you had John O'Neill at the beginning, who's one of the most pessimistic people either, who tried to bet me that our second record wouldn't sell anything. It was just <laughs> a song. So you can imagine you're up against that. But still, you know, like when we didn't have a dealer or anything, we just always thought it's a matter of time. Like we keep going. We're doing really well.
2: We're doing all the right things. This is going to work. When we came out, we came out at a really interesting time in the British music scene. There was a real lull going on. Like yeah. the, the most exciting thing you could see would be like, you know, a goth band bathed in in fog going, oh, oh and it was all fun and stuff but we got up there and just started blowing people off stage right and when i started stage diving in pubs people were like what is going on right and we just came up with this two guitar and karen just beating the crap out of the drums and me jumping on people's heads and we just threw people off guard they they expected jimmy jimmy and they got flash print first song to Bam, a haymaker right in the side of the head. It was just great because people were just like, finally, right? This is so great. This is what we've been waiting for. It was funny. Yeah, de-
1: definitely the scene was very, there was a real lack of energy. I remember thinking, jeepers, you know, this." it was a real kind of hangover, sort of post-punk hangover, you know, like that second wave of great post-punk bands. We really like, like Gang of Four magazine, all these people that all long gone. And a lot of the guitar bands all had a lot of pedals as well, especially like kind of delay and chorus, which I really hated. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Edge. (laughs) I I think like one of the things we we wanted to remind people, you know, why punk had happened in the first place. And it's just more like a kind of attack of sort of like the way Dr. Feelgood seemed in 1975, you know, when, when people were into Yes and Genesis and stuff, you get this... I remember hearing Doctor Feelgood for the first time, and I, at the time, I really liked bands like the Sensational Alex Harvey Band, and I even liked this band called Bebop Deluxe, and they had the most over-the-top production. What do you call that guy that did Queen? Oh, Roy Thomas Baker. Yeah, Roy Thomas Baker. So he did the Bebop Deluxe record, and if you look under the first side of this uh, record called Futurama, it, it is fantastic. I still love it, and obviously, it's one of my teenage records as well. But I mean, if you hear Doctor Feelgood and in comparison to that, it's, it's stripped down. There's no fills in the drums. There's no guitar solos. It's just like attack, you know. It's like go giving it the attack. And I think we had something of that. Just back to basics again, but just good, short, sharp songs. Do you remember Steve? We had to tell people you'd come on stage. You everybody be sitting around the floor. I remember being <laughs> like, get up, get up, get up. But the first those polite British audiences. Well, just kind of get. <laughs> I'm just getting back to the kind of hippie time again, you know, where people would sit on the floor and you'd listen to your um time. trying to remember what kind of bands were around that time.
0: It was a weird time. It's sort of post new romantics, even like it was a weird, Steve used the word low and it did. It is. When I was, when I was going back to some of the early, even press material about the band and the early V2 and that, that era, it was a weird time. It was just weird void. It was like, there was Duran Duran. They sucked all the air out of like the mainstream pop. And then the, the street level stuff was it? or It would see. It seemed like there was just this real confusion around what was rock music going to be next.
1: It was only really in rock music all because you know, like I would have been listening to a lot of like early hip hop and electron and stuff stuff that I still really like. So a lot of guitar bands were not on my radar anymore. I think there was only like I remember John. He really liked um, Dream Syndicate. You know, I had that, like, we we really liked that single, uh, Tell Me When It's Over. And and John says that that inspired him to write Keen. So, you know, that was one of the few kind of guitar records. It would always have been American bands as well. I don't think it was any real British bands that I was that keen on anymore. A lot of my favorites had all broken up, like Buzzcocks had broken up, Magazine had broken up, Joy Division were now New Order. I say New Order were one of the few sort of bands that I loved at that time. They were able to transition really well Well, they really
0: were it was funny you know going back and and reading a bunch of old stuff there's a robert criscoe quote he was reviewing manic pop thrill and by the way he gave it an a minus which is good i that's still still room for improvement a minus you know you can still (laughs) but um he called you guys a professional irish garage band and i love the word professional like it's (laughs) hey it's like they're very they're highly capable
1: well, I think I think there's something in that, you know, because I remember, I remember when I was actually in the band with John and Damien, and I was always impressed by their work rate, you know, because I had tried for years to get the people to, to be in a band, and it was always the same, you know, we'd, we'd be in the pub and be like, yeah, we're going to start the band, we're going to be like this. We're going to be like a New York Dolls. We're going to do this, right? We'll meet tomorrow and we'll play, and nobody'll turn up. Do you know what I mean? that, that happened to me so many times. So when I met like John and Damon, I thought, you know, I'd already knew, I'd seen the Undertones. You think, well, that's professional already. Do you know what I mean? Okay, it is. I think that's pretty good. They, the Undertones, were a professional garage band as well, garage rock, because they really thought about doing a show and doing the set list and stuff. So we learned all these things very, very quickly from them. I mean, the band I was in before, the Pedros, Bam Bam and McClellan, I actually it was me was kind of I joined them and they were already been going for a while, but I was a little bit older and stuff. And I kind of got them into a bit better shape because they were just they were just lacking a bit of discipline. And then subsequently they kind of when I left then it became like a different kind of thing. Because when I was in the band, we had we had two drummers basically, with a guy that did like Floyd Thompson stuff. So it was kind of like Adam and the Ants meets uh, Echo the Moon. and it was great. And it's a shame that there's no there's no record at that time except for like a really bad audio cassette. Always with John, with John and Damien, there was always that professionalism there. I don't know where they got that from, but they have a really good work ethic as well, which is why I think they succeeded out of Derry because Derry is very much. If you can imagine it's like a tiny island within a small island. <laughs> and people in Derry, usually, they don't care what's going on, even two miles down the road. And there's people in bands there who are quite happy to just be well-known in Derry. And that's the height of their ambition, you know. Yeah. And that's okay. That's okay if that's what you want, you know.
0: There's There's been so many interesting, like, one-liners about this band. Like, I, I as I was reading, like I said, a bunch of other contemporary interviews and even things that you all have said in the press over the years. It's like, it's amazing some of the poll quotes. So throughout our conversation, I might I might read a couple of these to you to get your reaction. It's just amazing how insightful, especially journalists were at that time, about how they, they, they were really trying to figure you guys out in terms of your sound and where you were coming from. But one of the things that you said, Raymond, that I love is that you were like the undertones after discovering drugs, literature, and politics with a lot more <laughs> girls in the audience dancing. <laughs> and I had the same reaction initially. I, I laughed at that quote. I was like, that, that's,
1: that's so poetic, but. Right. That's That's why <laughs> You don't get, get so many. Like, Undertones fans are more kind of anoraky, I think, you know. And that, I think that that's,
0: that's what's like belied by that quote is what happened in that period of time as the O'Neills were transitioning to the Petrols and for you all? Did you grow up? Like, did you, were you, were you expanding your horizons? You talk about literature, maybe experimenting with drugs. Like, that's a real thing. Like, what were the ingredients that made you guys a more mature band other than just a garage rock band? Cause there's certainly so much more substance.
1: Yeah. So when we started, Damien was actually in London. He wasn't there at the beginning. So it was John, O'Neill, and myself. The Undertones had broken up. At the time, I couldn't really appreciate it, but I can appreciate it now. He was feeling pretty down, and he, he wasn't feeling very inspired and stuff. But we got together, and just like a love of, like a fan's love of music, basically. We would start meeting up, and then we'd just play records all the time and talk about records and books and films, you know, and be drinking, of course. It was a kind of social thing and there was a kind of crowd in there because I'd just come back from university. So I'd finished university and there was no jobs at that time. So I was like, what am I going to do now? And so we started doing this kind of club night, John and myself and this other friend, Mickey Rooney, And we basically pulled our record collections. We started playing and it was a real kind of broad church. It was like, usually you go out on a Friday night and day. And at that time, it would have been like top 40, and the DJ would be talking on the mic in this kind of fake American accent, you know, <laughs> and that's kind of what it was like. And then we turn up and we didn't talk at all, we didn't have a mic for talking, we just played the music and we would play everything. You know, it obviously played more sort of obtuse stuff and more out there stuff in the early times, but you know, what it was it was to get everybody out dancing and, and to get a vibe going, and very quickly. We got a whole scene going. I mean, you know, you're talking about maybe 100 people at most. It wasn't a big, big thing. But, you know, those people were so passionate about that club and nobody missed it, you know. And, and, you know, if you heard a record, if we played a record, everybody would go out and get it. And it was just brilliant because it brought everybody together. And You know, because a lot of people were stuck in certain categories. You know, they don't move out of, like, indie pop or whatever. They don't know anything about black music. So we're playing everything, you know, and we get criticized for it as well because certain people are very conservative there and they didn't want to know. So John starts getting excited again. So he gets me on board to start writing songs again. But as well as music, we're talking about books all the time as well. And books became a big thing in the Pedrals. You know, everybody in the in the band would read, especially when we were on tour. And books would get passed around and we'd have discussions and arguments or whatever about different books. <laughs>
2: We had a tour library on the bus, right? And we would each bring like four or five books and swap them around. And so I'm bringing all my Gore Vidal, American History, and and then we're going through the canon, right? And we're just Kurt Vonnegut, John Dos Passos. Mike
1: Noy, Don DeLillo. I can't remember. Oh, uh, John Irving. John a big, Irving. A big favorite around that time, actually. Really good. Up until Olin Meany, he was fantastic. Yeah, so we we were passionate about those things. I mean, three of us in the band were university educated as well. I mean, and John and Damien they're self taught. They, like Damien was, I I think sometimes I've told Damien this as well. He, he would sometimes feel like because he hadn't been to university, he would feel about sort of, oh, I haven't been to university. But, you know, they're both very smart guys in their own way. You know, just look at their lyrics. I mean, Damien's always slagging off his lyrics, but he writes good lyrics when he puts his mind to it. It's just I think he finds it quite quite a chore.
2: Let's not forget that the undertones, before they became the undertones, right, they had been basically a family band. Oh, they were, there are more O'Neill brothers, right? And the only reason Damien was allowed to join originally is because he saved his money, and he was the only one who had an amplifier. So he, even though he was the youngest brother... He got put in and one of the brothers got kicked out. Anyhow, so you can imagine that that band had certain limitations because they were together for so long, right? And it was a very sort of limited input of new ideas, right? And it was John's band, essentially. So along comes Raymond, university-educated with a lot of ideas. Kieran, university-educated, a lot of ideas. Me, educated with a lot of dumb American ideas. Really strong egos. And all of a sudden... There's like this tension and this push and pull between five separate members. And John took this to heart and he just got inspired, right? He's like, wow, okay, so now I've got this guitar player who's challenging me and he's playing all this different kind of stuff. He's got Karen, who's beating the crap out of the drums back there, Damien, who's trying to be a lead guitarist on bass, and me, who's jumping into the audience. You know, John just sort of went, wow, this is brand new. I need to write songs that are going to suit this band. And I can, whereas before the undertones, they had their shtick, right? They're one of the greatest punk bands ever. But you know an undertone song when you hear it, right? It, it's, it has a an undertone's formula, right?
1: It, the undertones are a bit limited in their way, like, like the Ramones were. They, they couldn't move. They weren't allowed to move out of a certain parameters, you know? Plus the Undertones have this horrible attitude that I really don't like. And it, I, it's, not, it's not really to do with John and Damien. It's the rest of them. It's this thing in dairy where you can't, you can't seem to be pretentious in any way. Do you know what I mean? You can't seem to be they have ideas above your station. Do you know what I mean? You're supposed to sort of, like, if you ever read Mickey Bradley's book, it'll just make you want to punch your head. Do you know what I mean? It's all.
2: <laughs> uh, oh, really? I haven't read that.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's just too
2: much humility and too much we're not worthy. Do you know what I mean? It's like for God's sake, stop it, you know. People aren't paying money, good money, to see you just be normal, right? You're supposed to put on a show. It's supposed to be bigger than life. And I mean, I think he, he he's even very scared of like calling what they do art. And I'm saying, well, what is it then? Of
1: course it's art. It's like, you know, it's when well, somebody comes up with a song that didn't exist beforehand, huh? you know, even if it's a bad song, it's still something that somebody has produced and they've created something, you know, is that not art? Do you know what I mean? I stand there, they used to drive me crazy. I mean, there's stories about the undertones. Oh my God. Oh, well. Here's one. No, just I'll say one. Though. I'm only going to say one. Robert Fripp, they, they they were playing in New York. They played in New York. Well, it must have been time when they were playing The Clash. And Robert Fripp came backstage to say hello. And they said, I'm sorry, Robert, we can't talk to you. We don't like your music. That's what they said to the, the guy he came back and tell them, to hang out with them, to tell them they were great. And I just thought, oh, I had my head in my hands. I'm like, no wonder he's so
0: cantankerous. They did it to him. <laughs> Before that, he was a pleasant man.
2: Well, those were different times. And the first year of the petrols, there were quote unquote rules about what could and could not be done and who we would listen to in the van and what was acceptable and not. I mean, at one point, I just had to lose my temper and tell John, if you don't want somebody who's going to jump out and challenge the audience, then you've got the wrong guy. Right. Because he was saying, you're detracting from the song. These songs are serious. You need to stand still. And I'm like, <laughs> fuck off. No, it was always it was always
1: on the loser That one, definitely.
0: Well, that's an interesting point, though. The idea that there were rules because you would never guess that in the music. Right. Like it's the most, I mean, non rule based formulaic.
1: We got rid of those rules pretty quickly. I mean, That's he- what
2: happens when you got five really strong egos.
1: This is a hangover from, from the undertone stage, you know, that sort of Stalinist punk. You know, the undertones really, they believed all that shit. And later all the punks came out, like Keith Levine was a roadie for Yes. Do you know what I mean? Everybody didn't No, just, I love that. You know what I mean? It's like, everybody, like a lot of, like, say that I was just a little bit too young for prog rock, but like Kieran, for example, who's two years younger than me, knows all of it because he always had knocked about way older people, you know? And it's like, well, look, some of that's okay. Some of that music's pretty good, you know. It, but, I mean, it reached the stage, I think, obviously, 74, 75, where it became preposterous, you know, where, like, ELP had their carpet roadie, you know, and they've got, like, three, <laughs> ten-tone lights. You guys weren't wearing, like, white robes or anything? Yeah. I mean,
0: <laughs> <laughs> no kimonos on stage?
2: We had our share of bad sartorial choices over the years. I think I think that's the one thing. If you had got a bit of success, who knows what
1: would have happened. Really, <laughs> the fact that we were never really that famous it kind of saved us in a way. I think from from those kind of extreme reactions.
0: Do you have any memory or or strong impression? Where was the band the biggest? Like, do you do you remember where the audience had the most sort of passionate reaction? And did you distinguish that way, or was it like? It didn't matter where you were. I'm I'm always curious about how artists perceive where they are and whether they notice changes in the audience.
2: There are several points in our career where for me personally, I realized that things were changing, right? That we were graduating to the next level. I remember in particular playing the Metro in Chicago. So many of my favorite bands came from there walking out on that stage and seeing chicago just go nuts for us it was just like i went weak at the knees and then later on after the show rem came backstage to talk with us and peter buck said hey we're playing babel every night before we go on and i was just like my my head was exploding right I, we had all loved rem yeah. since their first record right yeah the ep And now here we are sitting talking to these guys. That was incredible playing New York at the new music seminar at what used to be the Ritz and the place is just packed and going nuts. I mean, like we were always popular in, in urban centers, right? So any big urban center that had a, a rich college radio format, we'd be huge there. And it was just always so gratifying because many of these were cities. I lived in Washington DC for a year when I was in college Going there and playing the 930 Club was just like a coronation for me. I felt so great playing there and seeing some of the, the DC scene stars that I recognized in the audience going, I can't believe they're here to see my band. This is the greatest thing ever, right? We also like had a big following in France. We had a big following in a Holland. Basically, anybody that we put the work in, anywhere that we toured, we would have a significant following at a club level there. So it it was just just fabulous every time we'd hit one of those big towns, playing the Milky Way in Amsterdam, right? Playing the Pigalle in Paris. These are just classic moments that I'll never forget.
0: Yeah, I would get the sense that if you barnstormed through a town, you were going to leave believers
1: in your wake. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's funny Steve mentioned that Chicago gig, there's very few obviously I can remember vividly that, that we don't, but I think I have a real strong memory of that one, because I remember we were just on fire and we walked on and there was a great response already, so you respond to that and you just get more, and then as Steve said, REM's there, and then we went to see them they invited us to see them the next night So and they were, they played Bible over the PA before they went on, they had started to do you know, auditoriums, maybe, I don't know, 15,000. You know, they had kind of gone up because I, I had loved the first two R.E.M. records in particular. And when I came to London, they were the first band I saw in London. Then, you know, they would take them years before they came to Ireland. And they were never going to come to Derry, that that's for sure. So to see them was a real affirmation of... So it's funny, you know, like... What we were saying earlier about there was nothing really around at that time, like am we're, we're the band, you know, 80, yeah. 80, 84, 85, 86, 87. So to get their validation, that was tremendous, you know. And, and then it was, as Steve will tell you, you're rubbing shoulders with all the people who you loved growing up. You know, I had Pete Shelley's telephone number. We played with Aggie Pop. We met Iggy Pop. He was so nice. He's the complete opposite of what you thought. Met Arthur Lee and supported him with the band. Got I had after the petrols. met television, and Tom Verlaine was a dick. Uh, <laughs> so I've met nearly all of, of the people that I love, so it's incredible. We'll be back with more Spotlight On,
0: presented by Osiris Media, after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. One of the other quotes was that um, the New York Times said that you guys were like a youthful Rolling Stones crossed with a revved-up television. And again, it's the kind of quote, you read it, you could pass right by it. But if you stop and think about it for a minute, it's like, yeah, that's actually pretty fucking good. That's that guy earned his check for copywriting that day. I wanted to ask a couple of other music related questions before I, I, we, I think we'd be remiss if we don't have a politics discussion or, or we'd be missing a big part of the petrol's canon if we if we don't do that. But first of all, you know, we're talking on the occasion of this this new anthology, this box set that's come out. One of the lines that's in all of the copy about it is that, it, you know, it says it was done in, in cooperation with the band. And I wonder what that means in practice, like going through the packaging, there's, well, first of all, the music itself, there's so much that was collected, right? Assembled all the, all the, I mean, we could do We could do an hour or two just on some of the remixes that are on there. It's, it's phenomenal. I think that's where you really get some of the diversity in the music, right? You get a lot of the, the house and the the hip hop influence, especially as you get a little later on. There's a lot of cool photographs and ephemera in the booklet. Who's sort of the band historian, and who was like, what were your contributions to the, to the actual release?
1: Basically, Damien and I kind of got everything together for the for the booklet. Obviously, we worked with this guy called Tony Lyon, who he put everything together. He he did all the artwork and stuff. So we worked in tandem with him, and as it turns out, he knew damien's wife he was at college with her. they knew each other very well so it it made things very easy from the beginning so he he lives down on the coast but he'd come up to london like two three times and we would go through stuff so the stuff that like damien's a good archivist they damien like a lot of i think all the best photographs on on this on the booklet are all damien's personal photographs
2: Mm -hmm. i'm the audio archivist so i'm the one who had to dig up all of these rare things that like we didn't even have digital versions of. So I'm having to yes. digitize off of seven inches and things. Like
1: Steve's always been sort of technical expert in audio, getting the audio as good as, good as possible. And, and as he says, checking things down. It was a kind of labor of love. I mean, it took a while. It didn't come together so quickly. And it got a lot of kind of really good happy accidents. For example, the guy who did the sleeve notes, John Harris, that came through Phil Wilson from the June Brides, his wife. She's a local councillor, and so obviously John Harris started off music journalism, NME, and Guardian, and then he does more political stuff now. We had no contact with him, but we knew from his Twitter he had a picture of the glasses photograph from Babel on his Twitter feed. Then Phil Wilson's wife started saying to me, "Oh, John is big, huge petrols fan and stuff." And you should ask him because I put this thing out on Facebook. I, I want I was trying to get some way. Instead of me or one of the band writing something about ourselves, I thought it'd be nice to get, you know, a lot of quotes together from the fans. But they sent them in. Most of them were rubbish. It <laughs> <So laughs> wasn't what I asked for. You know, I was hoping for some bon mode, some But not everybody not Everybody can do that, obviously. So I, I approached Phil's wife. She put me in touch with John, and he just agreed to do it straight away. We were limited to about 2,000 words. I think, and he was like, brilliant. Like some journalists really like that; they like being given how much they have to write. And he, I mean, he did a, I think he did such a great job. Really, I couldn't ask. I remember when I, when I read what he'd written, I felt really emotional because it, it's rare that you get that you get something written that you that you think it really is just like hits the target like a bullseye. You know.
2: What I think is really interesting, also, is even though, as the tap would say, our appeal got more selective over the years. Uh, <laughs> the people who like the Petrels are so incredibly passionate about it. We did a series yeah. of listening yeah. parties over the pandemic and people were there every time we started an hour early, basically to make sure that I didn't screw up the zoom call, but everybody was there. They're talking about what they're drinking. They're talking, Oh my God, it's so good to talk to you again. These are people who don't even know each other. They're just talking over our zoom call chat message. And their passion also, the, like, here's a journalist who does politics, but he's secretly a huge passionate petrols fan, right? And he's posting pictures of us from 30 years ago on his Twitter feed. And if you look in The Guardian, they're still to this day using headlines like blah, blah, manic, pop, thrill, blah. They they incorporate our song titles and our album titles into political headlines and stuff. And I see those and I'm like, wow we left a mark, however strange it was, but we are stuck in a lot of people's imaginations. And it's really gratifying, right? Like we cared about it so much. And sometimes it's easy to think that not having the commercial success that we didn't have success, but in some ways I'm kind of more satisfied with this and that we left a lasting mark among the people that we really care about. Even though it may not have been reflected in financial success, I still have a, a great feeling about the legacy we left behind. You
0: went there, and I, I was trying to think about the entry point to ask you about that, which is the one thing I never detect in any, you know, I, I did a lot of reading around you guys and in conversations with you. There's no perceivable bitterness. There's this thread that's sort of attached to the petrols of like, it was always about almost. And a lot of the writing in retrospect is about how. Didn't get their due ahead of their time you know it's that thing of like you know you talked about the New York dolls same thing like wildly influential, but there's there's a whole bunch of bands like that big star would be one you know these bands that their influence and their impact and their notoriety are bigger than their commercial success yet you don't key in on the downsides of being like almost having the thing you count kind of, you it, it's it's really amazing to hear you talk about. The joy in the thing you did have, not the anger or bitterness about what you didn't have.
2: The miracle of time, right? <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> if, you, if you had talked to us in the mid '90s, it would have been a different story, Lawrence.
1: Very fair. There's a, an underlying bitterness there, of course. There is a little bit, but as you say, as you get older, you know that has to recede, and you have to you have to look at it in a different way. Uh, I said to somebody recently, I'd rather be. I'd rather have been in the Pedros and have 10 years of what most people would consider a success without actual proper commercial success. We were going for 10 years. We made five studio records, two live records. I mean, I couldn't believe how many songs were on the box set. actually. I thought, crazy. Wow, we did all that. That is a crazy <laughs> amount of work, really. And both Steve and I would say we didn't work hard enough either. Do you know what I mean? So it's interesting. I'd rather have done ten years like that than have eighteen months with a worldwide hit, and then after eighteen months, you're sitting in your house and it's all gone. And how do you cope with having that level of success? What what would that do to a person? Do you know what I mean? So you have to be you have to think. Well, it's worked out. We're all still alive. We're all still friends. You know how many bands can you say that for? You know when we get together. There's something like Ciarán always says, This whenever we get together, there's an energy in the five of us, or even the four of us sometimes. When we, the five of us are together, it's the petrols, and it's more exciting than your normal life. There's an intensity there, but there's a real joy there as well. So I think I have so many memories of being on stage and being so in the music that it's like being in the furnace of the moment. You don't get that from anything else, and you can't pay yeah. for it. You know what I mean? So you get that. That's that's what it's all about. As Steve said, you know, you, all we were trying to do at the beginning was you trying to emulate your heroes. Nobody was sitting down going, "Oh yeah, well we've got to have we've got to have another one in that territory, boys." You know, it's like it's just not the way it works, you know. I mean, I remember when we had to go away and, and write hits, and I thought, well, if I sit down and write a hit, it's not going to come. Because, or else it'll be it'll be shit, you know, or it'll be very obvious or something. So you know, try and do something that's like one of my heroes who were famous, you know, and had top 10. Maybe that'll work. And, and you know, that was the kind of closest I got to that. But the thing about it is I think anybody who listens to our music, you might not get it straight away. But I think if you persevere, with it, it'll be with you forever.
0: You know, I made a playlist of the singles. I came at the catalog a few different ways because I wanted to experience it a few different ways to bring some different contexts to the experience. And so one of the ways I approached it was just listening to the singles. It's incredible how there's, you know, I don't know, it's called 8 to 12 singles, maybe more, whatever, you know, generally around Mm -hmm. a dozen or so. When they're isolated away from the albums that way, it's like, oh my God, this this greatest hits album is insane. But it's also like, it's just left to center. Like, oh, this, why wasn't this the most massive hit in the world? It's like, oh yeah, because it's like, it's a little noisy. It's a little edgy. It's a little dissonant. It's a little like whatever. And those are, there's no negative connotation that I bring to any of those. It's just, it's not played straight. And that, I think that that's the thing that's to me is really sort of exciting and, and what brings more of the longevity to it because it's not incredibly dated. There's some production stuff that you can mark as a sound of the eighties, but not terribly so. Certainly not stuff that's you know all back in vogue now that you' fed you here in, in music, but last question about music before we pivot to the conversation about politics, which is what what role did like noise play in your music and like the introduction of that of that element of that sort of left of center element did you did you intentionally dirty up your sound did you say you know what this is too poppy, we need to make it less pretty, or was it just the organic way you created? how how intentional were you about the sound
2: it's a little of both really because on the one hand we were huge Ubu fans i mean at one point i think we covered live every single song on the first perubu record we loved that record so much and their stuff you know you had alan ravenstein in the background just going nuts with these wop 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 we loved roxy music with Brian Eno doing these left of center things, and and those are the things that you remember, right? Like in remake, remodel, like there's just wee, all those little things that just were these for us hooks. We're like we love that sound, right? And so we were always trying to figure out ways of bringing that element of surprise into our music. You know, it just so happened that John was capable of writing just these churning out these pop singles. And we were like, well, how do we then take that and make it more interesting? Right. And Raymond was always going to like swing it to the left with his guitar parts. Right. Cause John would come in with an arpeggio and Raymond would go, how about this? crap?" And then we're like, okay, now what else can we do? And it was, that was part of the fun of, jamming these songs together was deliberately trying to deconstruct them and put them back together with slightly different pieces that took it to a more interesting place. I think John and Damien literally
1: had, you know, commercial success with their singles as well. So they weren't so so bothered about it. It's not fair to say that of course we we tried we always wanted to make the, the singles be heard on the radio. so we're never going to try and sort of jeopardize commercial success. Like we would always talk about things being poppy, but that's our notion of poppy. You know, we, we think Cloud 149's poppy, do you know what I mean? That's <laughs> the sort of thing. I mean there's there's a few songs, a few of the singles, and I just don't understand why they weren't they weren't hits because we did everything right. I think I think it was just a you know, to, to go towards the whole political thing, I think it was the politics that that knocked us down. I mean, people just had an idea of what they thought we were. And um, we were never able to change that. And we should have shut our mouth sometimes. But what, what happened was so you'd go to do an interview with some journalist. And, of course, we'd be in a pub and you'd have a few beers. And then a lot of times they weren't prepared. You know, they, they would ask you the stupidest questions or they'd be completely ignorant about everything. And so you'd get annoyed. Like if, you were, if we had been a few years older, you would have been more calm and zen about it, you know, and not kind of flee off the handle. I was so glad whenever we had to stop, whenever we finally stopped talking about politics, because by that stage, I was sick of it. And it, was, and it was whenever we went to America, that was when we realized that we were kind of wasting our time a bit, because I think it was the first time we went to America. So it would have been 87, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. We were talking about NorAid and about how they were sending money to the IRA. And we were just appalled, just like, that's not what it's about. Like a lot of uh, Irish Americans have a romantic ideal about what it's like, and 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 it's just not helping anything. And even us talking about it is kind of, it's not helping it either because a lot of people have preconceived notions. So all we should have done was should have put the things on the sleeve and say, "Look, that's our politics." You know, what do I need? I don't need to tell you anything else. You know, all we talk about is civil rights issues. We don't talk about Irish nationalism or anything. We don't talk about the IRA. But unfortunately, one of the singles was left with a tour manager to give in the information for the back of the sleeve. And we, we put this quote from this guy called Liam Fellows for a Genius Move single. And it was in Jerry Adams' book, but there was no need to say, there was no need to put Jerry Adams' name there. But of course, he didn't know any better and he put it in and he printed it. So then you're looking at the sleeve and it says Jerry Adams' name on it. And it's like, it doesn't even matter what it says. You just see at that time, anybody from the nationalist community, if they came on TV, an actor would say their words for them. It was the most ridiculous thing. I mean, that was, I'd say 1988 was the worst. After 1988, things definitely got better. But in 1988, it was a ho- quite a horrible, it was the worst year of my life. But I think in general, it was a, I had a horrible feeling even in London. There was a kind of, very became very conscious of kind of homophobia. One of my friends kind of came out and, Seeing the reaction to that was pretty interesting up to a point, but there was just a horrible feeling. There was a kind of underlying feeling of violence there as well. And it was just kind of horrible.
2: These were dark times. I mean, you gotta remember that Thatcher was smashing, the miners unions, the troubles up in the north were just at their kind of peak the public sentiment was terrible like there was all of the stuff that the US was doing in El Salvador and Nicaragua and Honduras and and so the the climate in a in a very politically aware city like London was just hot it was really really hot and when you've got six weekly or monthly music publications they're all sort of competing for quotes they were deliberately prodding us and trying to get us to say something and they would take things out of context, put it out in a poll quote, and all of a sudden we're in the sun as one of the top ten worst bands in the world, which I still take pride in. You were
0: number six. You were the sixth most hated band. I love I that it was number six. Like, it wasn't number two or one or ten. It was like number six. And who were the other five motherfuckers that were worse than you?
2: It's the only time we <laughs> made the top 10, right? We have to take it's some in
0: that. It's such a petrol thing to be the number six, most hated band.
1: <laughs> it was really funny because, like, literally the next year, the N89, if you remember, like the Bear the Wall came down. Things really kind of loosened up, you because know, I think it couldn't have gotten any worse, actually. It was just, and I mean, I, I kind of feel like out here at the minute, I think we're over the worst. Maybe you feel that in America, but there's still a threat. I'm not saying it's we're back on safe territory again, but I think things are not as bad as I thought they were gonna be a few years ago. We've lived through these times already and we've seen how times can change quite quickly. I'm hoping that I'm being really optimistic about that this if we can get past this horrible kind of stage that we're at now. Well, you know, everything's completely binary. Do you know what I mean? There's no yeah. middle ground. There's no consensus. There's no subtlety in what people say. Do you know, there's no nuance. That's the word I'm looking for.
0: Yeah. And by the way, that's where all the interesting things happen, right? That's where the more exactly. interesting art's exactly. created, the more interesting thought happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting also when when, if you talk to, I hate to use this phrase, but if you talk to younger people, or if you talk to Americans in particular who... Have only visited London in say the last 20 years. In my memory, going to London in the 90s, it was like it was almost grayscale or black and white. It started to really become technicolor around like maybe the drum and bass scene or at the blue note, or like it started to become the London it is now. And I, you know, and I wasn't there in the early mid 80s, the transformation of London itself, like any of the big cities, but London in particular, just it's so poignant to me how it's really hard to understand what it was like even 25 years ago, never mind 45 years ago.
2: I would actually argue the opposite in that it was technicolor and that it's gone gray now. And let me, let me explain why. When I first got there coming from Seattle, Washington, which was at that point, a tiny little provincial city. And I got there. And people were literally in tribes. There was the rockabilly tribe, and they all had these amazing quiffs and perfectly washed Levi 501s. And they weren't like noon 501s. They were 501s from the 50s, right? Then there were the goths, and the goths had these beautiful long-haired women, and they danced, and the rain came down. And, and then you'd go <laughs> to a 60s club, and the 60s hippies were like everybody—every You could every night of the week, you could go to a different decade, dance your butt off— and it was just so amazing and colorful. And now you go there and everybody's dressed in a track suit, some hundred dollar sneakers and they're riding bicycles. And to me, that's, that's sad. That's not London. That is any city in the world. And it used to be this place where you could cross pollinate these scenes. And I remember when we first started getting goths and rockabilly showing up to our show, I was like, yes, we've done it because we would play these different clubs and we'd, like you said, we'd knock a few fans over and they'd start coming to the other clubs, which previously they hadn't gone to. And then you'd start seeing all these different people coming. And it was just this great mixing melting pot back then. and It was so fun. There's so many tourists here in, at, at the
1: moment. It's unbelievable how many people are in central London. I mean, seriously, compared to the, the 80s and the 90s, even the early 2000s, it's ridiculous because the pound is really weak now. So I mean, there's Full of tourists i mean i was up there i just could i went to the cinema up the west end last weekend i just could not believe how many people there were it's just ridiculous but definitely something has been lost in london but i thought that when i went to new york in 2008 as well it's like all the places we used to go that you really love you know your secondhand record shops or bleaker bobs or just all the kind of independent places, it's just all now. East it's,
2: Village is gone. Yeah, practically, it's right? just you know,
1: gone. It's... yeah. It was so sad. And London's the same, you know, they not like all the venues near Tottenham Port Road, a lot of venues that you would have that we would have played, that you would have gone to, Steve, with, with me to see bands and stuff. A lot of them are all gone. I mean, there's new ones coming up as well. And there's still is quite a decent music scene. You just gotta look up it harder now. Mm-hmm. But it's still there. But I just—I I think you're right. Those tribes just don't really exist anymore. And I think—I don't know—that was kind of the end of youth culture for, for the way that I saw it. You know, so it was like kind of went from like the '50s to the early 2000s, and that was it. Whereas we used to be—you know—you would rebel. Like probably our generation, we all rebelled in certain ways. Whereas the kids now are all introverted. Everything's going in instead of going out. That's my theory.
0: I guess my only other question along those lines was the role of music in the culture and the intersection you all lived at of politics, music, and the different genres. I think something that's interesting about music now is I do feel like there's been more of an obliteration of genre since the mid-late 90s. I find that exciting about music, like a, a guitar band can have a beat or it can have electronics in it and I just I I think of Beck as sort of a primordial version of that right like he brought together the hippies and the skate kids and the hip hop kids and the folk kids like I, mm-hmm. I appreciate that but music's role in the greater culture does seem diminished despite the fact that's music that music is everywhere now and I wonder like how do you think about that do you is it in your consciousness at all does it concern you
2: I have to admit that I'm just an old man now, right? And and so yeah. anything I'm, that I'm going to come out with is just sound like me waving my fist at the kids, right? Get off my lawn. But I I, I do feel that something very, very important has been lost in that music was something it was one way that we had a shared experience the way we experienced music and the way we went together to see a show. And you would feel like the world was a better place because we are all here and we are watching the gang of four. And this is the best night of all of our lives. And we can all talk about it for the next month. Right. But you'll shut up during the gig. You'll shut up during the gig. You won't talk through the gig like they do now. That's the (laughs) Yeah. And you won't be like holding your camera up to prove you were there. Right. It's like, put that shit away and just lose yourself in the music. I feel sorry that, that the the kids don't seem to have that, but then I'll talk to one of my friends who has a 19 year old daughter and she will come home just high as can be off of seeing somebody whose name I don't know. And I'm like, Oh, it's still there. It's still there. I'm just unaware of it because I'm too damn old. So like, I hope that they keep that because it's so important to all of us to like to have something to share something positive together.
0: Well, listen, I do appreciate your time and I appreciate the music and it's so great to talk to the two of you. Thank you so much for making time for this and thanks for all the, the great music. I, I could still talk more of you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Famous last words.
0: <laughs> thank you so much, Raymond Gorman, Steve Mack, and all of that petrol emotion. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Producers are Lawrence Purrier and Michael Donaldson. Our theme music is by Q Burns Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Be sure to visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at spotlightonpod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.